Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, October 5th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. As the president of the United States continues his coronavirus treatment at Walter Reed Military Hospital outside Washington, controversy erupting over his potentially reckless car ride on Sunday. Secret Service agents sounding off on the dangers of that move. Meanwhile, a number of questions remain about the extent of President Trump's illness, as well as the exact timeline of how this crisis unfolded. When did the president know he was infected and were others put at risk? And across the country, more than 42,000 new coronavirus cases reported, more than 700 residents dying in the last 24 hours, as total deaths approached 210,000 here in the U.S. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with the latest on President Trump's ongoing treatment for COVID-19. The Trump administration is sounding optimistic, saying Trump is likely to return to the White House today after spending several days at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Meanwhile, there's growing outrage over the president's impromptu visit with supporters outside the hospital. This, as many call for more transparency regarding his health and treatment. President Trump being driven past supporters outside Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, seen through his SUV window wearing a face mask and waving to his supporters. Those in the vehicle wearing protective gear, but some medical experts expressing concern. An attendee physician at Walter Reed Hospital who is not treating the president tweeting this. Every single person in the vehicle during that completely unnecessary presidential drive-by just now has to be quarantined for 14 days. They might get sick, they may die for political theater, commanded by Trump to put their lives at risk for theater. This is insanity. The White House saying this event was cleared by Trump's medical team. I don't think this was a stunt at all. I think this was President Trump uh, showing people that he's very gracious for the hospitality they've shown him. According to Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, the Secret Service members who accompanied Trump volunteered for the assignment. Over the weekend, the president also releasing a couple of videos recorded in the hospital, including this one. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. Meanwhile, Trump's doctors saying that he is receiving an aggressive cocktail of medications, including a five-day treatment of antiviral drug remdesivir, the steroid dexamethasone and an experimental antibody treatment. On Saturday, White House Dr. Sean Conley repeatedly dodged questions about whether the president needed oxygen. Yesterday and today, he was not on oxygen. So he has not been on it during this his COVID treatment? He's, he's not on oxygen right now. <laughs> now, Conley says he did actually administer oxygen to the president twice, including on Friday at the White House after his blood oxygen dropped. I was trying to reflect the, the, uh, the upbeat attitude that the team, the president, that his course of illness has had, um, didn't want to give uh, any, uh, any information that might uh, steer the, uh, the course of illness in another direction, um, and in doing so, uh, you know, it came off uh, that we were trying to hide something, which wasn't necessarily true. 
And there's also questions about when and how the president caught COVID. Last week's Rose Garden announcement of his Supreme Court pick, Amy Coney Barrett, a possible super spreader event. Several people in attendance testing positive. And five out of nine people on his debate prep team have tested positive too. And someone else from the president's inner circle has tested positive. Today, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany announced that she has contracted the coronavirus. She says she has no symptoms at this time, but will begin her quarantine process. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence is back out on the campaign trail today with a rally in Utah. This despite CDC guidelines suggesting to self-quarantine for 14 days after being exposed to someone who has COVID-19. And Attorney General William Barr is going into self-quarantine after all, at least for now. The Department of Justice says Barr tested negative for COVID-19 four times and is likely to return to work later this week. Barr originally declined to self-quarantine, even though he came into close contact with former White House counselor Kellyanne Conway last weekend in that Rose Garden event. Conway has tested positive for coronavirus as well. Joining me now is Chris Liu. He's a former White House cabinet secretary under President Obama. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday, Chris. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. We learned that White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany tested positive just this morning. What does that tell you about the spread of the virus among White House staffers? Well, it suggests that there really weren't many precautions taken within the White House. That's entirely consistent with what the reporting has shown. This is a president who uh, really frowned upon people wearing masks, exercising social distancing. That is the correct procedure for any workplace, but clearly that was not being followed within the White House. And so I suspect that you will continue to see additional positive test results, not only among White House staff, but other people in attendance uh, at that Judge Barrett announcement about a week and a half ago. What was your reaction to the president's drive by yesterday on Sunday? Was he putting his Secret Service detail at risk? You know, it was grossly irresponsible. And look, obviously, we want the president to do well. We want everybody uh, in the White House to get better quickly. But there are so many people behind the scenes who have been put at unnecessary risk. I think about the household staff at the White House, the people who are in charge of the president's residence, and especially I think about the Secret Service. And we already know from previous events earlier this year, Secret Service agents who were manning the president's event in Tulsa, the vice president's staff uh, event in Arizona all got COVID. We know that there's at least 11 people at a Secret Service training location that have also gotten COVID. So to put these Secret Service agents at danger for another photo opportunity for the president is just the height of recklessness. But again, that's what we've seen from this president. This is a president several months ago who had peaceful protesters cleared out of Lafayette Park so that he could march through and hold up a Bible. So uh, he is always putting his political interests above the interests of other people. I would like to add that we've been informed that there was a plexiglass protector or barrier within that vehicle. Now, according to one of the medical briefings over the weekend, the president may be discharged as soon as today as someone who worked inside the White House. Would this be a wise move? 
Well, look, this should be dictated by doctors. And, uh, you know, I'm not a doctor, but uh, given uh, what the course of treatment that the president has received, he appears to have a severe case of COVID. And so he really ought to stay at the hospital. That being said, the White House does have their own medical facilities. Uh, and if he could be carefully screened there and monitored, then I think that's acceptable. I think really, again, for Donald Trump, this is about, uh, this is about as much about the optics, about seeming in control, instead of what makes most sense medically. So many things are in question today, one being the president's condition and also the big one, the timeline of when exactly he tested positive. What's behind all the conflicting messages we have been hearing over the weekend? What would you say? You know, look, at this moment of time, transparency is critical. The health of the president of the United States is a matter that should, something that should matter to all Americans, regardless of what the party is. And I think what you have seen over the last weekend uh, is simply this, a lot of confusion, a lot of misinformation. Um, again, it's in, it's completely consistent with what we see from other press people from the, uh, the, for the president, who are simply trying to appeal to what news the president wants released, instead of what's in the national interest. And so, again, it's hard to gauge from all of this what the president's true condition is, but the White House really needs to come clean on all of this. Now, we know that Vice President Mike Pence is holding a crowded rally in Utah later today. What would you say? Is his office taking the necessary precautions to keep him safe, considering he's the next in line? Yeah, I mean, the, the standard protocol is that if you have been exposed, you should be going into quarantine as well. It calls into question whether this vice presidential debate this week should even be happening. But even if it does happen and, and both participants are far away from each other, the idea that you should do another one of these big sp super spreader rallies just, again, seems reckless, irresponsible. Uh, and again, it simply shows this is an administration who's more concerned about their political interests than what's in the national interest or certainly what's in the interest of their supporters. Well, thank you so much for this complete analysis, Chris Liu, former Obama White House Cabinet Secretary. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Joining us now is Edwin Piti. He's in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside Walter Reed Medical Center. Edwin, what's the latest on the president's condition there? Hey, Andrea, up to this point, it's all waiting games since we have yet to hear from the White House to see if or when the president will be discharged from Walter Reed National Military Center. But I would like to show you the scenario right outside the hospital right now. Since early in the morning, a big amount of Trump supporters chanting with flags, with music, all of them trying to give their moral support to the president and letting him know that they are here from him. But I had the opportunity to talk with a supporter that drove in all the way from Pennsylvania, and he talked to me about how does it feel to be here and also addressing the controversy of the president's drive-by yesterday. Take a listen. Just came here to show my appreciation what he has done for us for the last four years. Say a prayer for him and everybody else in the world that has coronavirus. Listen, he came here Friday, same Secret Service people. It didn't bother them then. It's not going to bother them now.
Now, Andrea, many reports are saying that yesterday President Trump was demanding to go back to the White House for two main reasons, because he's done with the hospital and also because, according to the sources that were with him, it, he was saying that it makes him look weak. And we know that the main concern his campaign is having right now is that many people that work with him have tested positive. One of them is his campaign manager, Bill Stepien, and also Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair. And meanwhile, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden continues to campaign in Florida after being tested twice and coming out negative. His campaign saying that they will continue to test him on a regular basis to make sure that he is safe. Reporting live in Bethesda, Maryland, Andrea, back to you. Thank you so much, Edwin. Beat the reporting from outside Walter Reed Hospital. We will be waiting for any details coming from there. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court begins its 2020 term today, shorthanded and still mourning the death last month of Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The eight remaining justices will carry on their work amid a partisan firestorm over her likely successor, Amy Coney Barrett. At the same time, they will face a flurry of emergency petitions from Democrats and Republicans over the way mail-in ballots are distributed delivered and counted. And speaking of mail-in voting and early voting, as the election continues, former Vice President Joe Biden's national lead against President Trump jumped to a nearly two-to-one margin after last week's chaotic presidential debate. And that's according to an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll released Sunday. The poll was completed just before the announcement that Trump had tested positive for the coronavirus. Biden now holds a 14 percentage point lead against the president, with 53% of registered voters backing the Democratic nominee and 39% supporting Trump. The U.S. on Sunday reporting more than 38,000 COVID-19 infections and over 400 deaths. Almost 30,000 people currently hospitalized. Over the past week, the case average has been over 43,500 cases per day, an increase of 6% from the average two weeks earlier. Wear the mask, wash your hands, stay away from others. More than half of the country is reporting a rise in COVID-19 cases. Wisconsin seeing an explosion of infections over the weekend, recording 2,892 new COVID-19 cases on Saturday, including 19 deaths. The temperatures are changing here in Wisconsin, and uh, people had a very lovely summer this year as far as uh, the weather go is concerned. And people had an opportunity to hang out and congregate outside, and people haven't stopped congregating. We're also in the beginning of football season. you got the NBA championships, and people are going back to bars. In places like Tennessee, 1,192 cases were reported on Saturday, along with 45 deaths. The same day in South Carolina, 649 new cases cases and 31 deaths. Meanwhile, New York City trying to fight against a possible second wave. Neighborhoods in nine hotspot zip codes, home to half a million people, are on the cusp of closing down again. Uh, it will be difficult for people who have done so much to fight back through this crisis, but it is necessary to stop the spread of the coronavirus. The shutdown set to begin Wednesday will include all schools, retail stores and gyms. It also means both indoor and outdoor dining will be prohibited and restaurants will be limited to takeout and delivery only. And as the winter approaches, experts worried. Researchers at the University of Washington are now predicting as many as 2,900 deaths a day in December. 
The reason we think that's going to happen is the combination of people, you know, uh, taking their uh, foot off the brake and starting to mingle more, being less careful, and then most importantly, seasonality. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. Your News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, your news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And welcome back to You News. On Capitol Hill, negotiations are still alive on a possible second coronavirus stimulus package, and there is a commitment by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to recall their chambers, currently in recess, to vote on a final bill. A new coronavirus relief package that includes a second stimulus check and other benefits is considered critical in providing financial aid for large and small businesses, ongoing coronavirus testing, and individuals as a result of this ongoing pandemic. It's expected that Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin might agree on a stimulus package by midweek. Meanwhile, the final jobs report before Election Day was released on Friday, and despite an overall drop in unemployment in September, Latino unemployment remained constant at 10 percent. Now, a new report by the advocacy group Unidos U.S. highlights the devastating toll of the pandemic on jobs and income among Latinos. Joining me now is Maggie Weiler, senior economic policy analyst at Unidos U.S. Thanks so much for joining us today, Maggie. Hi, thank you so much. So what's behind that 10% unemployment number for Latinos right now? I think what we're really seeing and, and why that number really hasn't changed is the industries that Latinos are disproportionately represented in. And so when you know we looked at across the board, what's changing, what's happening, the industries like the service industry, the food um, and preparation industries, even though jobs are coming back, they're really not coming back at a high rate. They're not coming back as quickly as I think a lot of us planned on them uh, returning. And, you know, we just saw this piece about New York City and potential closures happening for restaurants again. And so when this is happening, it's, it's showing that people aren't returning to work as quickly. And so that number is staying fairly stagnant. A year ago, the unemployment rate for Latinos was 3.9%. How long would you say till the Latino unemployment rate goes back to pre-pandemic levels? You know, it's in, it's incredibly hard to say that. We've seen just a complete jump, um, as you said, from last year, even from the beginning of 2020, when the average was around 4%. When you look at the Great Recession and, and the 2008 through 2010 years, it took a long time for unemployment, the unemployment rate to drop. And, and I think that, you know, depending on what happens in the next couple of months, it's going to be really critical to see, do we have a vaccine? Are people able to kind of start to return to a sense of normalcy, um, going back to school, going back to offices, uh, things like that? It's all going to play a factor. So just at this point, it's really hard to say. Uh, it really, I think the next couple of months are going to be critical. 
As we've seen, Congress has yet to pass another round of relief and unemployment benefits have expired for millions who lost their jobs at the beginning of this pandemic. Now they're facing eviction, a big headache, a big nightmare for them. Talk to us about how this affects the Latino community. This is incredibly important to the Latino community. I mean, um, workers across the board are facing eviction at this time, but uh, according to some of the census polling and data that they have, you know, nearly half of Latinos are saying that they could be out of their homes due to eviction in the next two months. That's a, a huge number. And, uh, you know, Latino renters were already um, really uh, housing insecure before the pandemic. Um, and all of the things that come along with coronavirus have really only exacerbated that. So not to mention, like we talked about, um, disproportionate representation in industries that really have been hardest hit by closures and and job loss, but um, also being part of the essential workforce and really seeing coronavirus hit the community in large numbers and not having the same type of access to paid and sick leave uh, that exists in a lot of other jobs, not being able to work at home at the same rates has really placed Latinos at a, a, a disadvantage. And this both is economic hit, the financial uh, job and income loss that we've seen, in some cases from multiple sources for Latino workers, has really placed them um, directly in harm's way of losing their homes. And, um, you know, in addition to the fact that the income loss will definitely put you at risk of, of being evicted, Latinos also face some structural barriers as far as accessing housing assistance and support that could potentially help them at this juncture. Last but not least, what are some recommendations to alleviate this crisis? What do we need to do to help fix this massive problem? Because like you said, the next few months will be critical, but this is all going to take some time. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the protections that were passed as part of the CARES Act back in March have expired. Um, Recently, the CDC did pass an eviction moratorium that will prevent evictions through the end of the year. But that's all it does. It doesn't um, come coupled with any sort of housing assistance program or anything like that. So really, we need to see those programs um, bolstered and increased. And so the HEROES Act, which the House passed back in May, did include $175 million for rental and mortgage assistance. It also included $100 million for housing counseling. Those are the types of programs and the kind of funding that we really need to keep people in their homes right now. Um, you know, US also did uh, some polling earlier this year that showed that Latinos were really using that $600 um, extra a week through the pandemic unemployment assistance program to make sure that their necessities were covered, that their rent was paid, that they were keeping food on the table. So definitely continuing those payments for unemployed workers right now is critical. Thank you so much, Maggie Weiler, for providing us with all this useful information. Senior Economic Policy Analyst at Unidos U.S. Thank you so much for having me. Last week, a judge ruled that the Trump administration could not raise fees for a variety of immigration services. Well, now, as Rafael Rodriguez explains, we're learning more about what comes next for those impacted by this move. USCIS Ombudsman Michael Doherty stated that the agency will abide by Judge Jeffrey White's orders not to raise their fees that were to take effect on October 2nd. White had ruled that the measure would be likely to harm low-income immigrants and violate parts of the Department of Homeland Security's Administrative Procedures Law. 
particularmente. I particularly eh, think that the appointment of the interim director was not legal. Therefore, any rules that the interim director passed or moved forward were also not legal. Immigration fee increases rose between 30 and 535 percent under the new rules, which led pro-immigrant organizations to file a lawsuit to prevent them from being enacted, arguing that the increases were arbitrary and capricious because the agency also eliminated most of the pay exemptions for low-income immigrants, exposing that population to greater danger. Judge White agreeing with the argument for now. This will allow many to become citizens, to become permanent residents, to renew their work permits. If the government does not win the process, the Immigration Service could return again and issue new fees that meet the administrative requirements. But Elba Schneider disagrees with the price hike on U.S. immigration applications. It will stop many people from continuing with their regulatory procedures since we are all immigrants in this country. Lawyers recommend taking advantage of this move to proceed forward with immigration proceedings before fees potentially go up once again. Reported by Liliana Escalante, this is Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Now to California, where a Mexican-American academic will become the first person of color to lead the California State University system. Jaime Garcia has more on Joseph Castro and his new role. I'm so honored to lead the California State University. The grandson of Mexican immigrants who came to California to work as farm workers. Dr. Joseph Castro was appointed as the first Hispanic chancellor of the California State University system in 163 years. I know from my grandfather, uh, who helped to raise me, that he came to the United States about 1921. Uh, my great-grandfather, Jesus Mendes, uh, came from Zamora, Michoacan, and he was working on the railroad and then uh, later worked in the fields. He reveals that was a high school counselor. That changed his life. His name is Jose Salinas. Counselor Salinas was the one who invited a young Joseph Castro to a recruiting program for Latinos at the prestigious University of California, Berkeley. I took my application to that program with probably about a hundred other students and uh, they admitted us on the spot that day. I was admitted to the University of California, Berkeley, on that day. He will graduate later with a master's degree in public policy. It is historic that a Latino with Mexican roots becomes the chancellor of the largest university system in the country, the California State University, with a budget of $7 billion. I am so proud of him because he represents me and all my people. I think that's something that many will see as, I can do it. I can do something like he did. And I want the families to know that we are there to support their students. We're going to provide them with a quality education that's affordable. And uh, most of our students um, do not pay any tuition at all. Dr. Castro knows that he will take the helm of the California State University system in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and an acute economical crisis. Definitely is a challenging time, but that's why I decided to try to be chancellor and um, I think that we have a bright future. After being historically appointed, Dr. Castro will start his job as chancellor of the California State University system next January 4th. In Los Angeles, Jaime Garcia, U News.
Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.